All right. How's everybody feeling? Very good. It's been a while since I uh, took the pulpit. Uh, please take out your Bibles. You're going to need your Bible today. And today is going to... Last night we had a, uh, a wonderful and key revelation given by Pastor John Michael at our joint prayer meeting. And uh, I want to ask everybody to go and tune in to our podcast and get that message. Because last night a, a revelation was coming down from heaven. And God accompanied it with signs of lightning and thunder. I'm serious. I mean, it was God's way of saying, oh, this is me. You know, it was a powerful revelation. And uh, this is going to be Revelation Weekend because today I'm also going to be presenting something that's very um, key. A key revelation. One that's going to be supported what, by what I believe is sound biblical exegesis, sound interpretation of the scriptures. And I need y'all to keep up. Okay, some of you, it's brand new to you. The, 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 the discussion about it, it may be brand new to you. But I'm going to ask everybody who's got a brain in here, and I know God has given all of you intellect. Amen. So keep up with me right here. Keep up with me. All right, because we're going we're gonna to move. We're going to move through the scriptures here. All right, so today's going to be a key message. Uh, you won't know the title because I'm not going to reveal it toward the end. All right? It's, it might be better for today for you actually not to know the title until later. Um, September 4th, quite a few weeks ago, I began a sermon series, which I'm going to continue today and in coming weeks. On the role of women in ministry and leadership. <clears throat> After that first message, which was titled, Women Are Not Inferior, uh, we had a bunch of guest speakers minister to us, so obviously I couldn't continue the message until today. Now today I'm going to pick off, pick up right where I left off. And um, in my message, Women Are Not Inferior... I explain how horribly women have been oppressed in the world today. They are oppressed in the world today. And they have been throughout all of human history. And unfortunately, the church has not helped to free women, but rather perpetuated this oppression. And in the, in the message, I talked about the various reasons why women are oppressed within the church. And the two reasons that I presented why I think women are impressed in the church is number one, it's because of tradition and culture. And number two, I said was biblical exegesis. So in my first message, I dealt with the first cause of tradition and culture being one of the main reasons why women are oppressed in the church. And uh, I talked about how women were traditionally not afforded an education Many uh, men and women in the church, they still have a cultural belief that women don't make good Bible teachers. You made me lose my place, bro. Where am I? Yeah. 
there's still in a lot of churches there's still a big cultural belief especially in america that women don't make good bible teachers instead they should just be at home changing the diapers all right this is a caricature of what a lot of people in the church think men and women in the church Uh, In other words, they imply that women are by nature inferior to men in teaching gifts. And we looked at how the Bible does not give that message. Beginning with Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 27, it makes it clear that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If women are supposed to be inferior and cannot be entrusted with an education and leadership responsibilities, then why is it that God gives the mandate to fill the earth and have dominion? Why does he give it to both Adam and Eve? Why not just give it to Adam and say, hey, Eve, you help out with that, all right? But he gives this mandate to both Adam and Eve. Now, some may submit that the fall in the garden placed Eve in a curse of inferiority, dependency, and weakness. But it seems to me that such a curse, it didn't seem to face Deborah, who we know was an Old Testament prophet who led the nation of Israel. It didn't seem to face Horda, another prophetess who led the nation of Israel during a very crucial time. God didn't seem to be aware of such a curse. Because he refers to Miriam as a leader in Micah chapter 6, verse 3 to 4. The Apostle Paul, although he was fully aware of his culture, he didn't seem to think that women were inferior either. He commends them in his letters as key leaders. And finally, Jesus. I talked about my first message. How Jesus, in a culture... Where Jewish rabbis did not have female students. Okay? That was the culture in which he was. Remember all the disciples, they, a lot of times they called him rabbi. Why? Because that's what the, they thought he was. He was their teacher. He was their mentor. He was their rabbi, their Jewish teacher. But we know that Jesus didn't mind having Mary sit at his feet. And remember, we talked about how that wasn't... We, we think... We think it's a posture of worship. But we know from the context of reading that text that it was actually a posture of receiving teaching. Because what was she doing sitting at his feet? She wasn't singing songs and humming and lifting her hands toward Jesus. Right? Jesus was teaching. And she was sitting at his feet receiving the teaching. So in my first message, I try to break us free from the influence of culture and tradition by using the plain examples of Scripture. In creation, there is no mention of God implying that women are inferior. In the incarnation, Jesus invites both men and women to steward his words and his teachings. Now, um, I don't care if you're American, Korean, Saudi Arabian. By the way, since I gave my message, man, this is a sign on to us. The king, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, 
on September 25th, Sunday, September 25th. Let me make sure that's right. Yeah. Sunday, September 25th. Is that a Sunday? Yeah, 11. Yeah, that's a Sunday. Three weeks after I gave my Sunday message, King Abdullah announced bold reforms that for the first time in Saudi Arabia's history, women will be given the right to vote, run for local office, and serve on the Shura Council. That's a major breakthrough. This is Saudi Arabia we're talking about. Man, that's a sign on to us. God's doing something on the earth. Um, in American history, black men after the Civil War, were allowed to vote in 1869, but women were not permitted to vote until 1920 through the passing of the 19th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So all, for all the American women in here, don't treat your right to vote with contempt. It took a long while for you to go get it. And it's very recent, 1920. That's only like 90 years ago, women have been voting in America. So anyway, I don't care if you're Saudi Arabian, Korean, American, or Chinese, men and women of God. Let us not conform to the patterns of this world. Because a lot of our views on women and leadership and ministry, it is not coming from scripture, it is coming from the world. And we need to not conform, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The world says women are inferior. This is an absolute lie. God gives no indication of that in his word. All right. Women are inferior. We got to throw that out. So that's the first cause of women's oppression in the church. Tradition and culture. All right. And we as good Bible reading, intellect-filled, spirit-filled Christians, we must be able to distinguish what is culture's influence and what is the interpretation that I'm getting from the Bible. All right? Because the vast majority of y'all in here, I don't even need to deal with the second issue. Because you don't even study your Bible to the degree that you have a problem with the text that I'm about to present. Okay, how many of you in here you even know what text I'm going to present. The women in leadership and teaching controversy. You actually know where these texts are. Raise your hand if you know where these texts are. Okay. That's nine of you. That's right. I can count that fast. Nine of you. Out of 150 in here. All right. 150, 160 people in here. Only nine of you actually know which of the biblical uh, texts I'm about to present are. All right. So the vast majority of you, your views of women, about women being inferior, it is not coming from the Bible. It's coming from culture and tradition. And I want you all to confront those beliefs. All right? And stop conforming to them. All right. For the nine of you in here, you need this next message I'm about to present today. Okay? Because biblical exegesis is the second reason why women are oppressed in the church. And today we are going to deal with that. Hallelujah. Everybody say, women are not inferior. Women, are not inferior. women say, I am, able. I am able. 
All right. Praise the Lord. You are able. You are able. All right. So let's deal with the second cause. Biblical exegesis. Uh, today I'm going to present a sound interpretation for some of the texts that are used by the most humble, well-meaning, Bible-committed Christians to forbid women from crucial ministry roles and leadership positions. I'm going to try to present sound interpretation. Some of you, you couldn't tell the difference between sound interpretation and bad interpretation. All right? Whatever boat you're in, just stay with me, all right? Because I'm going somewhere today. All right, so if you're ready for some Bible study, let me hear you say, yeah. yeah. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, don't say yeah, all right? You're a hypocrite. If you're ready for the Bible study, have a Bible in front of you. Open that joint up right now. All right. Remember, in my first message, I said that I picked up a book in the Torch Library called Four Views of Women in Leadership. Uh, Four Views of Women in Ministry, I'm sorry. Four Views. And then I told you recently when I went on Amazon, I found another book called Two Views of Women in Ministry. And I presented that this issue is so, has such a polarity that it separates people. And in the past, it separated people into four views. But more recently, people have abandoned some of the more traditional views. And have landed at another view. And it's kind of been simplified into just two. Alright. And so those two views are called complementarians and egalitarians. Okay. Everyone say complementarian. Complementarian. Everyone say egalitarian. egalitarian. Alright. Obviously you guys know what. Alright. Maybe you don't. Complementarians. Alright. Means that they are not. They have no problem with maybe women teaching here and there. Women teaching men here and there. It's okay. Women can write a book here and there. It's okay. But women cannot hold a headship position of leadership in ministry. Whether that's a missions organization like Campus Crusade. Or whether that's a local church like Chaersongdo or New Philadelphia. Women cannot hold a headship position. Alright. So that's where a lot of them fall. Complementarians. Uh... But they will actually be okay with women teaching here and there. Here and there. But they like to select where the here and there are. Okay. Egalitarian says, women can do anything and everything. Women are created equal with men. And women are capable and women can do everything. Including leading, being the head pastor of a local church. Okay. So those are the two views. Okay. Anybody with me? Uh, Beck. Bloomberg and Gundry, those, they're, the, uh, they're the editors of Two Views of Women in Ministry, said, as recently as two decades ago, the polarity was vast. Um, and page 31, Beck says, uh, traditionalists, uh, actually, this is page 31 of my uh, iPad, by the way, with medium font. Okay, that's, uh, this gets tricky because on the iPad, if you increase the font, you're like at page 60. Well, you know, when you decrease the pound, you know what I'm saying? All right, this is page 31 of my iPad in medium font. Okay. Traditionalists still claim that theirs is the Christ-honoring, Bible-believing perspective and that the egalitarian's perspective is the liberal, 
culturally accepted view. Okay, so those are generally the 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 the, the emotional charge of this debate. Egalitarians, a lot of them argue for women in all positions of leadership, but many of these egalitarians also argue that homosexuals should be ordained as uh, pastors and leaders in the church. Okay, so you can tell that there's theirs is a very liberal sounding position. All right, so when you're over here in the conservative camp, you don't want to align yourself with them. All right, and so the conservatives, the best exegesis that they've been able to come up with is that the complementarian view. You know, and so they would see the egalitarians as being very liberal. So if you ever said, uh, I, I tend toward an egalitarian view of women in ministry, they would think, well, do you think homosexuals should be ordained as well? Okay, so I'm just letting you know that those are some of the emotionally charged uh uh, attitudes that you're dealing with when you use those terms. So don't, don't just use those terms is what I'm saying. Okay. Without knowing the controversies behind it, behind it. Um, so the issue that continues, he says the issues that divides traditionalists who are now self-identified as complementarians. Okay. So pretty much complementarians are just traditionalists that have reformed a little bit. Because there's so many women around and they don't want to get beat down. So they've reformed a little bit. Okay. Um, the issue that divides traditionalists and egalitarians today is that, is that, is, I'm sorry. The issue that divides traditionalists and egalitarians today is not that, is not that of women in ministry per se. It is rather women in leadership. While a consensus has emerged regarding women and spiritual gifting, a great divide has emerged on the issue of women leadership, especially women leading men. Okay? So everybody clear on what the issue is? The complementarians who were, who were formerly called traditionalists, they are now embracing that women can use their gifts and teach. And teach, yes, sometimes men. And write a good Christian book. And we will buy the book at our churches and distribute them. Okay? That's not the major issue now. The major issue that's dividing people is women leadership. Women leading men. The complementarians say no. A lot of times they say absolutely no to certain positions. Alright, so that's the issue. Um, let's look at the text that the two camps mainly use. Egalitarians like to use Galatians 3.28. Turn there with me. Galatians 3.28. I mean, I got to save my energy, man. I'm using all my energy here. I got to go preach a detail one. I have to conserve some of my energy here. Okay, this is a very... Um, it's a very passionate topic of mine. No, nah, I can't say that. Nah, it's not a really passionate topic of mine. But I like it. I get passionate about a lot of things, but, you know, I just get passionate about preaching. I think that's it. Okay, where am I? Where am I? Galatians 3.28. Okay, so this is the main text used by egalitarians. All right, so let's read it. Galatians 3.28. Everybody, one, two, three, go. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. So the egalitarian says there is neither slave. Now, if a brother 
tried to greet another brother today with a holy kiss, that brother might in return be greeted with a holy fist. All right, most of us, we leave that. All right, brothers, please leave that word in the first century. Okay. All right. So Gordon Fee submits the idea of cultural relativity. Everyone say cultural relativity. Now, some extremists, they hate this idea. They throw it out. And they advocate the adoption of first century Culture as the divine godly norm for today. There are communities that actually try to live this way. Very few. They're out there. But we must understand that there is no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. Cultures 2,000 years ago are not just different from today. But the thousands of cultures of today are different from each other. Which goes to show you, no matter how ethnocentric you are, you are wrong in thinking that your culture is divinely ordained. If we as Koreans think, oh, we are God's chosen people on the earth. Korean culture, Korean food, this is divinely ordained. Kimchi is a revelation from heaven. Okay? If you're that ethnocentric, man, you got issues. Okay, because the... Because there is no divinely ordained culture. All right? And so we, we got to understand that there are things that are culturally relevant that in another culture become irrelevant. And so the issue, the idea of cultural relativity must be kept in mind when reading the Bible. As you can already see that you've been doing with the holy kiss. All right? So let's keep going. So, Gordon Fee. Uh, he understands that if he presents this idea of cultural relativity, it can create a lot of space for people to say all kinds of things. And to say, well, then homosexuality must be uh, culturally, rel- uh, 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 culturally, culturally relative issue. Right? It was forbidden then in the first century, but it should not be forbidden now. It was a cultural thing. They just couldn't accept it back then. But today, we can and we should. Because that's a culturally relevant, a culturally relative issue. I'm sorry. Culturally relative. Everyone say culturally relative. Culturally relative. Okay, stay with me. All right. So he understands this danger. So Gordon Fee gives seven guidelines. Okay. Uh, he suggests that the recognition of a degree of cultural relativity is a valid hermeneutical procedure. In other words, it's a valid interpretation method. But to be valid... It must operate within recognizable guidelines. So here are some guidelines that he offered in his book to distinguish between culturally relative texts and those that transcend their original setting and are standards for all Christians at all times. Okay. So in order to distinguish, he has set forth seven guidelines. Let me go through these seven guidelines. All right. Everyone stay with me. Say everyone number say uh, everyone say number one. A person should first distinguish between the central core of the message of the Bible and what is dependent or peripheral to it. Second, one should distinguish between what the New Testament sees as inherently moral 
and what is not. Okay? If somebody, I say, hey, what's up, man? I just, I just, I just give them, you know, like a 21st century greeting. You know, what's up, man? What's up? What's going on? All right, good, groovy. And I walk away. I don't say groovy, okay. All right, good, good. And I walk away and the gentleman starts saying, you are an immoral pastor. I'm like, what's wrong with you, man? Okay? Because he thinks that not disobeying the word about greeting each other with a holy kiss, he thinks it's immoral that I didn't do it. Okay? We obviously will not see this holy kiss issue as an immoral issue. It's not inherently immoral. None of us really think that way, do we? Okay? And so we got to distinguish between those things that are inherently immoral, like certain forms of sexual immorality, and those things that are not. Okay, that's the second guideline. Third guideline. One must take special note of the items where the New Testament has a uniform and consistent witness and where it reflects differences. Okay, so the witness of the whole uh, New Testament. Number four, it is important to distinguish within the New Testament itself between principle and specific application. Okay, you don't have to write this down. Just buy the book. Okay, <laughs> there's too many notes here. Just listen. Try to get it. Try to catch it. So, number four is, it's important to distinguish between, between principle and specific application. So, Gordon Fee says, it is possible, I want you to listen to this quote, very important. It is possible for a New Testament writer to support a relative application by an absolute principle and in so doing, not make the application absolute. About one third of y'all got that. I'm going to read that again. It is possible for a New Testament writer to support a relative application by an absolute principle and in so doing not make the application absolute. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 through 16, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16. Uh, this is the women and head coverings issue. Okay. Uh, now, in this passage, Paul is commanding and teaching... That women should cover their head when they pray and prophesy in the church. And he appeals to the divine order of creation and he even appeals to redemption. And he establishes the principle that one should do nothing to distract from the glory of God during a worship service. Because that's the principle. Don't distract anybody during worship. But the way he does that is through the application of Everybody have a head covering on, especially the women. The women have a head covering on. The creation account is absolute. And so we would assume that the application must be absolute. But it is not. It's relative. Okay? So think of it this way. In Western cultures today, failure to apply this passage would create no problems during worship. Okay, all the women in here, I don't see a head covering on your head. You have all failed to apply First Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, but we have no problem with that. Hey, what's the big deal? Hey, there's no problem. But if a sister were to actually obey the text and they wore a full length veil in most American churches and here at New Philly, she would draw all kinds of attention to herself and would thereby abuse the spirit of the text. Did you just catch that? What's the principle that he's teaching? 
Don't distract during worship service. Well, if you literally apply the relative application of that first century application, if you apply it today, well, you will just be defeating the whole purpose of his principle that he's trying to teach. Don't distract because you will be distracting everybody. Why is Anna Rowe wearing a head covering today? Last week was pink. Today is green. Hot green. Man, she obviously wants to attract attention to herself. Okay. So anyway, that's what it means by um, using an absolute principle. I'm using a relative, using an absolute principle to support a relative application does not necessarily make that application absolute. All right. All right. Hallelujah, man. I'm making some of y'all head hurt. I'm I'm seeing y'all go, oh, man. I can't keep up. Okay, hey, don't worry. There's a there's a podcast. You're like, I won't listen to this again. <laughs> All right, one day you will. Now this is revelation, man. This is like, it's good. Well, I'm going to bring the revelation after I present Gordon Fee's guidelines. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we must distinguish between principle and application. Number five, fifth guideline. Uh, it's important to determine the cultural options that were open to a New Testament writer. One of the best examples I can cite is systematic slavery. At that time, systematic slavery was the norm. So the instructions that Paul gives uh, towards uh, slavery only includes the fact that slavery exists. Okay, There were no cultures that Paul knew of nearby where slavery didn't exist. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he could only address slavery in the cultural options that were open to him. Which, where there were no options. It was either slavery exists, and that was it. So he wrote in that context. You got to keep that in mind. Because if there was another option, he would have wrote a little differently. Okay. Uh, the sixth guideline. One must keep alert to possible cultural differences between the first and 21st centuries. And number seven, one must finally exercise Christian charity when dealing with the differences and have a willingness to ask forgiveness from those whom they defer. Okay. So those are the seven guidelines that Gordon Fee presents in distinguishing and discovering passages that may be culturally rel- uh, relative. Okay. Now, how do these guidelines apply to women in ministry? Okay. Now that we've covered these seven guidelines... Let us now look at how these guidelines apply to the role of women in ministry. Okay, uh, Going back, the ma- two main texts for complementarians is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, 34 to 35, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 12. Okay, Now, in both texts, silence or quietness and submission are urged to the women. In 1 Timothy 2, the women is not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, lots of well-meaning Christians, they use 1 Timothy 2 to forbid women from teaching and holding positions of leadership in the church. And then they use 1 Corinthians 14. So usually it's 1 Timothy 2 is the main text. And then they say, hey, look at this other one over here. It kind of supports what we've been saying in the main text. And then they use 1 Corinthians 14 to back up that position. But the problem that I have with this is that they claim to believe the plain meaning of the text, but their application is half-hearted at best. 
So let me call some of those complementarians out. If you really believe the text, then you need to apply the text. Make sure that women in your church are silent. Because it's in the same passage, by the way. So you're going to forbid them from leadership? Then you should forbid them from teaching. You should also forbid them from speaking. Because it's all in the same passage. Let me present to you what a wholehearted application will look like. First, women will not be allowed to even write books or teach into an audio recording or a video recording. Why? Because that book or MP3 or video may fall into the hands of a man. And women are not allowed to teach men. So we must eliminate that possibility of disobeying this scripture. <laughs> Women, you cannot teach. Even in, write a book. It's forbidden. Now, most complementarians, people that I like, like John Piper, and the majority of conservative evangelicals in America, and a lot of conservative Presbyterians in Korea, they do not follow this application. Because... I am positive that those men have read Christian books by female authors. Guarantee it. Go over to John Piper's library and it will have female authors in there. Well, John Piper might claim, well, they didn't teach me anything. <laughs> okay. All right, whatever. Anyway, that's what a wholehearted application would look like. No, not, no books, no, nothing. Another implication. Uh, women would not be allowed to teach the Bible in Christian educational institutes of any kind. Seminary, Bible college, nothing. Bible school, nothing. Because men are there in their classes. Trinity evangelical and even Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the most conservative seminaries in the whole United States of America, I checked their website. They have female professors. Now, by the way, they didn't. They didn't 25 years ago. But recently they have. Why? Because enrollment is down. And so, you know, I mean, you got to do what you can. Now, I don't know what, that, what the reason is. But they have female professors now. Okay. <clears throat> we in college. We in college. Pipers. John Pipers. I'm, I need to pick on John Piper. because He's the best guy that I... I know inside out. I don't know him inside out, but I know him the best. Uh, John Piper's alma mater. That's where he went to college. Wheaton College, right? They have female professors. Now, I cannot prove whether John Piper sat through the class or lecture of a female professor. But Wheaton has female professors. And I'm pretty sure that I never heard of a story of John Piper walking out of a lecture because a female professor was teaching it. If they really believe... The complementarian view of 1 Timothy 2, they need to get up and say, this is not, this is not right. This is not biblical. And walk out. Uh, they don't do that. In fact, most of these men that in their local churches that they are in charge of today that forbid women from teaching or being in leadership positions, most of them have benefited from many of these female professors. But they won't admit it. 
another uh, wholehearted application will look like this. Women will not be allowed to teach in the missions field. Even if she's the only qualified Bible teacher in that country or in that area, she wouldn't be permitted. But, you know, most churches that forbid women from teaching in their churches, they do not apply the same policy in the missions field. Did you know that? And so what happens is a lot of these um, indigenous people from the field, when they visit America, they get all confused. Because they're like, hey, Sally, oh, Pastor Sally, or oh, Sally teacher, oh, you're so wonderful. You've taught me the Bible so much. Are you going to speak at church on Sunday? And Sally's like, no, no, never. I will never teach at a Sunday pulpit. And the guy's like, why? You taught me all my life, and I'm a man. And she would be like, well, my church forbids that. Well, why, why do they forbid it here in America but not over there in Cambodia? Why here in, in America, in Cincinnati, or in Atlanta, or in L.A., but not over in Kenya, or Somalia, or Botswana? All right, I know my African geography. <laughs> okay. Uh, they don't apply it text this way. Uh, number four, a wholehearted application would forbid women not only from teaching and leadership positions, but remember, it will forbid them from speaking anywhere in the church. First Corinthians 14, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. Be quiet. No. They are not permitted. Right? First Timothy 2. She is to remain quiet. Okay, we're not even talking about leadership and teaching. We're talking about just speaking. A wholehearted application must include the rest of the text. What does the rest of the text say? No speaking. Now, if someone really believes the plain reading of these passages, that's what a wholehearted application would look like. And I don't see many complementarians carrying out a wholehearted application of their interpretation of the text. So that tells me that they're picking and choosing, which is more dangerous than what even the egalitarians are doing in the liberal camp. Now, I, I cannot support the complementarian view because their exegesis picks and chooses the application of their original interpretation of these two, two passages. They claim to believe the plain reading, but in actuality, the majority of them are picking and choosing what to believe. So a good way to look at this text is to understand that certain texts are culturally relative. So let me get into that right now. By the way, some may protest here and say, I don't like interpreting biblical texts as culturally relative. Some people might say that. They just don't like that idea altogether. But... I would call them a hypocrite because they did that already was with first Timothy chapter two, verses nine to 10, just the two verses before this main text, they already did cultural relative uh, processing. Why? Because that text says 
I also want the women to dress mildly, modest, modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Is that gold? Is that gold ring on your finger? Take that off. Are you kidding me? The word of God says a woman should not adorn herself with gold or jewelry, pearls, or whatever you got. Are those braids in your hair? Young woman, how can you come to church with braids in your hair? Do you know the word of God says no elaborate hairstyles? Okay. All right, man, hey, hey, nobody do that. Is that Banana Republic shirt? In my income level, that's considered expensive. I don't ever want, I want to see Old Navy on Sunday, all right? <laughs> Man, no one does that. Let's just be real. We agree with the principle that you got to interpret certain Bible texts as being culturally relative. We already do it with so many things. All right. And so the idea that First Timothy 2, verse 11 through 12 might be culturally relative, it can actually be supported by the exegesis of other Pauline letters. Uh, let me present it to you real quick. First Timothy, chapter 5, verse 11 through 15, and Second Timothy, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. In those passages, Paul describes certain women and especially passion filled younger widows. That, you know, lost their husbands for whatever reason. Paul describes certain women who were troublesome in the church at Ephesus. And they seem to have played a big role in allowing false teachers to infiltrate the church. So Gordon Fee explains further. Since women are found teaching uh, and prophesying elsewhere in the New Testament. It is altogether likely that 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 12 speaks to a local problem. Because Paul was okay with women teaching elsewhere in the New Testament. But he emphatically prohibits it here in the church in Ephesus. So if he says maybe this is a local problem. Well, what about the fact that Paul appeals to the creation account in Genesis? Doesn't that mean that it should be universally applicable? He's talking about Genesis. It doesn't change. Genesis doesn't change. Uh, right. Verse 13 to 15. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, according to the fifth guideline that Gordon Fee uh, talked about, which I presented earlier, remember that when looking for a culturally relative text, it's important to distinguish between principle and specific application. So I'll reread Fee's quote. It is possible for New Testament writer to support a relative application by an absolute principle and in so doing not make the application absolute. All right. And so we talked about the example of head coverings. Paul appeals to the account of creation and even redemption to back it up. This principle that nobody should distract from the glory of God in worship. And uh, many of us will find that the creation account is absolute, but the application here for head coverings is relative. Well, in the same way, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, Paul appeals to the creation account 
to establish the principle. I believe the bottom line principle here is that truth must be guarded in the church. That truth must be kept pure from the false teachers that are infiltrating Ephesus. Truth must be guarded at all costs. I believe that's the principle he's getting at. And thus he submits an application to forbid women from teaching, having leadership positions, or speaking up in order to quell, in order to stop the false teaching from spreading via the uneducated, passionate, idle, gossiping, weak-willed women and widows that were at Ephesus. Man, did everybody get that? That's a turning point right here. Get that. He submits an application to forbid women from teaching, holding leadership positions, or even speaking up in general, in order to quell the false teaching that was spreading through the uneducated, weak-willed, passion-filled women that were over at Ephesus. That was the application. The principle was to guard truth. Because Timothy was a young leader, by the way. So Paul's trying to teach him whatever he can, whatever you got to do to guard the truth, you got to do it. So you know what? I'm just not even going to permit those women. I mean, I know those women. And he talks about them later in chapter 5 and, and 2 Timothy 3. He talks about them. He describes them, not in a very, not in a very flattering way. Why? Because these women were wicked. These women, um, they were wicked. So anyway, it sounds like to me that Paul supported a relative application with an absolute principle, but he did not intend to make the application absolute because it was a problem that was local to Ephesus. All right, that's the thesis, man. That's getting presented to you right now. Now, let me appeal to some of the other guidelines that Fee presented for finding these women's texts culturally relative. Okay, here's some other things. Uh, one of the guidelines he said was to distinguish between the central core message of the Bible and what is dependent or peripheral to it. You know what? I don't find Paul's instructions about women to be the central core message of the Bible. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems to me a very peripheral matter. Or something that's dependent more on the central matter, which is the gospel. Okay, so I don't think it's like do or die. I mean, we, we can still have the gospel and disagree on this issue. Second, one should distinguish between what the New Testament sees as inherently moral and what is not. Holy kiss. It's not inherently moral. But neither is woman in leadership. For a man to call a woman wicked and evil and filled with a Jezebel spirit, that's not, that's not biblical. It's just absolutely unloving, which is not Christ-like at all. It's just derogatory. It is hurtful. Why would you say that when this issue in the vast majority of people's minds and in the vast majority of what the Bible seems to say isn't an inherently moral issue? So why are you making it one? Just so that you can win your argument. Okay? I don't think it's wicked. Uh, third, one must make takes. Take special note of items where the New Testament has a uniform and consistent witness and where it reflects differences. You know, the New Testament does not have a uniform and consistent witness toward the plain reading of 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14. Does not have a consistent witness 
supporting the plain reading of those texts. In fact, the rest of Scripture does not bear witness to a plain reading of the text in question at all. Find me one passage in the entire Bible that supports the plain reading of 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 15. And you won't be able to find me one. I mean, I'd try looking. If you do, call me up. All passages in the Bible, not just this one, they must be interpreted in the bigger backdrop of the entire Bible. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 cannot be isolated from the rest of Scripture. Fourth, it's important to distinguish between uh, the New Testament itself. Uh, we already dealt with that. Principle and application, right? We already looked at that. Uh, fifth guideline that we presented. It's important to determine the cultural options open to a New Testament writer. Now, let's think about the cultural options that were open to the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letter. Okay? Uh, let's see. Because of all the Greek philosophers saying that women are inferior, um, virtually all the women were uneducated at that time. Majority of the women that he met, they were uneducated. So, huh, Paul can't seem to address examples of educated women because there is very rare to find one. So that was the cultural norm and options that were presented to him. Um, so therefore, the way that Paul dealt with women... In, in Ephesus, it reflects the only cultural options that were open to him at that time. Do you understand what I'm saying? Look, it's like this. Man, man, let me, man, man, let me tell you. All right, because half of y'all aren't getting it because you don't see the issues at hand. But I'm telling you right now that as this message goes out, I'm telling you other preachers are going to start preaching this message with more boldness. Because I believe there's a, there's a restoration that God's making happen among women in the end times. Because Joel chapter 2, by the way, says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. God's not like, man, you're a woman. I ain't pouring my spirit on you. I'm not giving you my anointing. I'm not going to allow you to heal the sick. I'm not allowing you to pick up the mic and preach. God doesn't ever say that. Now, look, if Paul was living here today, he would have another vast array of cultural options open to him. So if he had to write a church in, let's say, a city named Ephesus with educated and uneducated women at that church, he would have said, he wouldn't have said, I do not permit a woman to teach. He would have said, all the uneducated women, tell them to get with the educated women. I do not permit those uneducated women to preach. Or to teach, or to have positions of authority, or even to speak. Because, man, they'd be saying some foolish things. Tell them women to get a small group leader who's educated in the Bible. That's the way he would write. Why? Because those cultural options would be open to him. But back in the first century, they weren't an option. So, how does he address it? Just shush! He, he can't even write. Go get an education. Where are they going to get an education? You know what I'm saying? And by the way, that was Paul's attitude, what I just gave you, if he was living here today. Because Paul allowed Priscilla to teach. 
Paul called Phoebe a deacon. When people who don't read their Bible very well will look at First Timothy and Second Timothy and will say, the qualifications for a deacon are only open to men. And then they say, things, say the same thing about elders. Qualifications for elders is only to men. Well, how do you know that? Because it says it must be a man of one wife. So it can only be a man of one wife. So deacons and elders, man, it is only open to, to men. But man, these are people that don't read the Bible. Because Phoebe is commended as a deacon. So obviously, Paul was writing within the cultural norms of that day. Because there were no other options open to him. If he said, uh, deacons, these are qualifications for a deacon. It must be a man of one wife or a woman of one husband. Wait a minute. That doesn't look right in my context. There are no women that are like that. All right. You know what? Let me just put it up, men. And later on, I'm sure they understand that everyone in Christ, there's no ma- male or female. I'm sure they understand. They're, I'm sure they'll look at the Galatians chapter 3 later. So uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm just going to keep it, keep it concise. All right. He just writes it. But what does he do with Phoebe? Commends her as a, as a deacon. And even calls Junius, a traditionally female, Junia, Junius, Junius, a traditionally female Greek name, calls Junius an apostle. Which is a whole nother topic. Okay, so Paul's attitude toward women is not what complementarians have. And uh, six guideline, one must keep alert to cultural differences between the first and 21st centuries. Come on, man, let's admit it, man. There are so many cultural differences between the New Testament culture and our culture today. I mean, there are differences between my culture and Janae's culture. My culture and uh, Robbie's culture. Robbie, what are you, Chinese? <laughs> Taiwanese. Taiwanese Canadian. I mean, I have a hard time understanding Taiwanese Americans when I went to NYU. But he's a Taiwanese Canadian. All right? There's differences here. Look, when I say, when I say, man, it's about to go down up in this piece, it may mean something totally different to him. So that's, that's why I actually believe that in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is actually saying that women are easily deceived. I believe that's what he's saying. That's exactly what he's saying. In other words, if women are easily deceived, why should we let them teach at all or even be witnesses? People believe that Paul references Genesis 3 to show that women are incapable of teaching. And I agree with that. Women are easily deceived and women are incapable of teaching. At that time. Because some of those women didn't even know their ABCs. Or their Alpha, Beta, Gamma. I didn't take Greek yet. I'm in Hebrew. Aleph. For those who know Hebrew. Okay. We have to understand there are cultural differences between that century and this century. Rona. Where are you? Say, I love God. Shame on you. How can you say that? Don't you know in the Bible it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 35, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. (laughs) 
How dare you? Check this out. Why does that not apply to us today? Because what was shameful in the first century culture is no longer shameful for us today. If you go to Saudi Arabia and you start a church plant, you might want to backtrack to some of these applications. I'm serious. Because you want to win people to Christ in that country? You better adjust the gospel and fit it into that culture. Because gospel, by the way, is incarnational in nature. Gospel doesn't say, oh, man, Saudi Arabian culture? Oh, this is too hard. Oh, take the good news somewhere else. (laughs) Women with head coverings everywhere. Whoa, whoa, it's crazy. Gospel doesn't do that. The gospel is incarnational in nature. So sometimes you do backtrack to something like it's shameful for a woman to speak up. Right? You might, I might say that in Saudi Arabia, but not up in New Philly. Oh, hallelujah. You can say I love God all you want. <clears throat> Just not in the middle of my message when I'm in a flow. Okay. And uh, anyway, the final guideline being that one must finally exercise Christian charity in dealing with differences and have a willingness to forgive those with whom they differ. Uh, brothers and sisters, what I presented you today is, uh, is huge. It's revolutionary. Now, I'm in submission to Pastor Huang. Now, in the, in the very small likelihood that he listens to this podcast and he doesn't like what he's seeing, he can just, he can just tell me to stop. And he might be like, don't let Pastor Aaron preach anymore. And I'll be like, yes, sir. And I'll submit. Okay? Because why? Because God's called me to be here in sonship to serve the vision that's trickling down from James on the church, from Pastor Huang and somebody. So I'll do that. But in my heart of hearts, when I look upon the women of today, God has poured out his spirit upon them. And one of the main things, one of the main things that you can do when the Spirit of God comes upon you is you speak the words of God. You prophesy. You pray. You teach. And by the way, for you to have the biggest impact, you got to do it in public. And what I find is I think it's a terrible shame that women are forbidden from using their God-given gifts and anointings just because of some loud-mouthed, very good Bible studying (laughs) scholars and seminarians say it's wrong for them to do so. Let me end with this. You want to see perfect theology? You look at Jesus. Jesus was perfect theology with two feet. In fact, the the Bible says he is the word of God. He is the incarnation of the living God. And when Jesus walked this earth, you got to observe his attitude toward women. And I covered this in my first message. What was his attitude toward women? He embraced them. I know he he chose 12 apostles that were all men. Okay? And you might argue, a man may argue, well, look at that. 
God only allowed priests in the Old Testament to be men, and Jesus only chose apostles to be men in the New Testament. So that should argue for the point that most leadership positions should be only taken by men. What I would argue, well, Jesus also chose uh, Judas, a betrayer, as one of the apostles. So does that mean that we all must choose also a betrayer among us every time we choose an apostle? Or choose leaders? Choose people that we know are going to betray us? Just so that builds our character? What kind of mess, messy argument is that? And here's the thing. The priesthood of the Old Testament was simply a preface to the true one that was being revealed through Christ. And the New Testament epistles argue of a priesthood of all believers. Men and women. Men and women in the house, you are all priests of God. Did you know that? But what I want to submit to you is Jesus' view and attitude toward women is clearly shown in the way that he allowed Mary and other women to sit at his feet and to receive his teaching. To receive his words. And I believe that Jesus had an expectation. When anyone receives his words, freely you have received, freely give. If the women in this house, if all you do is receive, 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 and you never teach somebody else, there's something wrong with you. You're like the Dead Sea. You're just receiving all these nutrients. But there's so much nutrients that aren't flowing out. You just, nothing can live inside of you. You're dead. You got to teach others. But you might say, well, they should only teach women. Man. I've never, in all my discernment with the Holy Spirit, and I can't say my discernment with God is 100% perfect. In all my discernment with the Holy Spirit... I have never felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit where when a woman picks up the mic in an audience of both men and women, the moment she picks up the mic, Holy Spirit prompts me, stop her. She's disobeying my word. I mean, I've never felt that. I've thought that because of my previous convictions about these texts. And I'm thinking, man, psh. Man, let's see what this woman can do. All right? That's kind of like what a lot of guys' attitudes are because if they have a complementary view, they're just like, man, they're not even allowed to do this. But let's just, let's just give them a fly. All right? Even when I've done that, these women have blown me away. <laughs> I went to one day in the year 2000, Louis Giglio invited Beth Moore. Nice. Beth Moore got up. And up until that p- time, you had Vadi Bakum, You had John Piper. You had all these amazing male preachers. And they preached. And the college students were like, yeah, amen. Yeah, we love God. Good message. And then Beth Moore picked up the mic. And everyone's like, yeah, woman. Yeah. <laughs> They're all looking at her. And she just starts to speak. And anointing just starts flowing. And the whole field full of hundreds of thousands of college students... They just started like being convicted, falling face flat on the floor. And and the only message I remember from that day, only person that I really was impressed by that day 
was a woman named Beth Moore. Who, by the way, in the Southern Baptist tradition, she's not allowed to teach men. So all of our CDs, a lot of times you see, is a women's conference. What a shame. I long to sit through those women's SBS Bible studies. Why? There's some amazing women that are teaching on that DVD. I want to hear it. But why should I feel guilty about wanting to hear from them just because some, some few people, you know, who I disagree with? Anyway. Anyway, all this to say, I think Jesus, uh, we can't know for sure, but I'm, I think Jesus embraced uh, women and women learning in a, in a context, in a contemporary context where women were uneducated. And I believe that God foresaw a time where women will rise up take up their anointings and teach the church both men and women and lead the church both men and women to do his will that's all pray right now alright so yeah I gave you guys a lot to digest man and I, I'm not asking you to come to a conclusion today I'm just asking y'all to be thoughtful in your journey toward coming to a conviction And if you haven't noticed by experiential evidence, New Philly as a church, we've been following the Holy Spirit. We've been following the scriptures. And in our experience, we love women ministry, prophesying, teaching, preaching, praying. We love when women do that. You know, there are some places that don't even allow a a woman to lead worship. Just because that looks like leadership over men. Then what are you saying about Darlene Sheck? Or the Kim Walkers? Or the Carrie Jobs? Where do you think they got their anointing from? From a supermarket? From a new age movement? Where did they get their anointing from? I believe they got it from God. And I believe that God's given them that anointing not only to lead worship in front of just women, but in front of men and women, in front of the people of God. And I think we as men in the church and even the women in the church, we all need to stop oppressing women in the church. If God's given them a gift and a call, and we have a biblical exegesis, that makes allowance for them to serve, then I say, let them serve. As a man, I prefer to have a man in charge. That's my personal view. I'll express that. I prefer to be the one in charge here. I prefer to be the lead pastor here. Even though I'm kind of co-leading with Aaron, I prefer to be in charge. But in the case there is no man to rise up, and the best qualified leader is a woman, let's go with the woman. Let's go with the Deborah. Let's go with the holder. If God's spirit is upon them and God's gifted them and they're walking in the spirit of excellence, let them serve is what I say. Let them serve to the glory of God. And if I made a mistake and I'll, I'll tell God before him in judgment day, Lord, I made a mistake. I'm sorry I let all these women produce all this fruit for your kingdom while I was on the earth. 
I'm sorry, Lord. And I'll be done with it. It's a mistake I feel like I'm willing to live with if my biblical exegesis is wrong. But the other flip side is something I'm very uncomfortable with. There's no wholehearted application of the text. And whatever half-hearted application there is, it just looks like oppression to me. It looks like oppression left over by Greek philosophers of another time. Greek philosophers that did not know the word of God. Greek philosophers that believed that women should just raise the children and cleanse the diapers. It's not the standard that we as God's people want to embrace. Hallelujah. I'm just going to take a moment right now. If you're in this room...